Welcome to Courtney Beyond the Cake, stories that inspire, uplift, and fill your soul with joy, much like cake. Steve Carlston is widely known in the broadcast world for having one of the most collaborative leadership styles in the industry. In fact, it's typically the first thing any of his past or current employees will tell you. He's the best boss I've ever had, hands down. Over the course of his 38-year career, Steve has worked his way from radio and television advertising sales to managing television stations and markets across the country. Throughout his career, Steve repeatedly led his stations to their highest market rankings. In fact, in just one year, he led an unprecedented ratings turnaround, launching one of his stations into first place and displacing the longtime market leader by winning every local newscast. Steve is now the president and general manager of NBC4 in Los Angeles, where he's credited with creating the strongest news ranking in nearly 10 years for them. He's also committed to supporting his local community, sitting on the board for three different nonprofit organizations and as a special advisor to several others. In today's episode, we follow Steve's journey in the media industry and learn how he developed a personal philosophy of living life connected and how that personal mission statement helped him create a leadership style focused on unity and camaraderie, something he'll tell you is the key to not only his professional success, but something that has brought great fulfillment in his personal life as well. And you guys, I failed to mention that Steve is also an avid skateboarder. He loves to ski and play basketball. In fact, he's taken Michael Jordan baseline, not once, but twice in the Michael Jordan fantasy camp. Big welcome to my hero and my dad, Steve Carlston. Well, that's the best introduction I've ever had, and a nice one at that. I'll tell you, that's great. It's well, nice to uh, see that. Well, it's nice to see that the uh, skateboarding and the skiing and the basketball are being passed down as a legacy to the grandkids. So, thank you for that. Well, absolutely, you taught me just about everything I know, especially in those three areas. I still love them to this day. We were skateboarding in an empty church parking lot yesterday, enjoying the sun and trying to stay six feet away from anyone else around around us. <laughs> so it came in great. handy. Look at that. Uh, well, I'm so great. excited to have you here and for people to get to know you. Um, like I said last week and in my first episode, and today you really are one of my heroes. And I there's so much I look up to you for. I Last week when we were talking to mom in the episode, you know, we talked a lot about the dinner conversations that we used to have as a family. And I, you know, she would have those with her parents. And I just, I remember ours, especially when I was in high school and I really understood what you did. And I always wanted to be you and do what you were doing. I remember a friend actually asking me, it was probably like sixth grade or something uh, around then. And she said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, well, like it was like obvious, right? I said, uh, I, I want to be like my dad. I want to run a television station and have my own office and, you know, just take over, <laughs> take over the world, much like Steve Carlston. But I've always just really admired everything that you have done. And so I would love to talk about that today. But first, I feel like we need to get to know you a little bit. Um, you're, you're so fun to be around. You're so memorable to be around. Uh, let's start way back when, and maybe you could just walk us through a little bit of your, your childhood before we get to the really amazing things you've done in your adulthood. Well, I, I grew up in Southern California, uh, five children in the family. I was uh, the youngest along with my twin sister. I guess she's actually the youngest by about 30 minutes, but we were just the, the tail end of the family. I had two older brothers that were about 12 and 10 years older, so they were out of the home. I have an older sister, Kathy, that um, uh, she and Sue, my twin sister, and I kind of palled around together back in the day. 
Um, and then my brothers would come home and we'd get in all sorts of uh, fun and have a great time. I, I love them all. They're great people and great examples to me. Um, I was sort of the quiet one in the family, just based on kind of the, the pecking order. And, you know, I used to sit at the kitchen table with my mom and dad and the two sisters and they would all chat and I would be over in the corner and they all thought I was very shy until I would get in trouble at school. And I found myself, um, you know, trying to be the clown at school and get my personality there. And by the time I got uh, into high school, I had developed a little bit of a, you know, a comic relief, I guess, for the, my friends and uh, got voted senior funniest person along with uh, another you know, girl at school named Karen Carbo. And um, we would uh, be the funny people at school. So my mother, when I got the award, said, excuse me, you? Because I was so <laughs> quiet at home. But I had to get it out. I I used to stay up late at night and watch Johnny Carson. Uh, for those of you who don't know, he preceded Jay Leno and a few others and also Jimmy Fallon, but he had the Tonight Show. And I'd stay up and write down jokes so that the next day I could go and make them my own and, and eventually uh, develop my own wit. So, um, you know, it was fun. And I had a great time growing up in Southern California. We used to skateboard on clay wheels and, and ride bikes down hills with uh, no brakes. And just, um, you know, it was a very idyllic time in the history of man when you could mom would just send us out with a um, a lunch bag full of food on Saturday. And we'd leave it about 839, baseball, bat, mitt, basketball, football on hand, and come back at six o'clock at night. So it was a great time. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And I, I'll have to post some pictures on my Instagram when we share this podcast of you skateboarding and with your long hair. And now to see you, you know, in a suit every day you go to work. I mean, back then, could you have ever pictured yourself doing what you are doing today? Well, first of all, I could never uh, picture myself as bald as I am today with that long hair that I had as a kid. That was the, that's the shame of life right there. <laughs> it was good um, hair, you guys. I had good hair in my in my day, but now it's you know a little high and tight, as they say. Uh, no, I couldn't actually. I, I you know I knew uh, deep down that I would have uh, something to offer, um, but through uh, you know a series of good fortune and uh, being blessed, um, I ended up getting to run some companies and uh, being in the best career ever. And um, part of that is just the gifts given to me uh, at birth and others are things that have been developed and and just good circumstances. And I count everyone as a blessing for sure. Absolutely. I mean, you were, you were kind of the goofball. We talk about you a lot as a, as a troublemaker just within our own family. And we love hearing your stories um, from childhood. Um, but you did, you grew up and you were, had a very successful career. I mean, what do you attribute that too. I, I'm curious, like, what were your parents like growing up? Were they pushing you to work really hard? Where did that work ethic come from? I think uh, both parents, actually. Uh, I think the, the the skill or the attribute I got from my mom is kindness and uh, treating everybody on the planet equally. And that has been sort of, as you mentioned um, before in your introduction, um, sort of a, a little bit about my management style came from my mom. And then watching my dad work so hard during very difficult times and never giving up. Um, and uh, just some advice he gave me. And we'll talk about my dad a little bit uh, later, I think. But at the end of the day, if there's anything I walked away from my dad is to be a world beater was one of the phrases he used to me. And he, he said that I would be that. And so I've tried to live to it. And 
Um, you know, there's always richer and bigger job people in the world, but uh, considering where I started from, I'm very happy with that, but more happy with the fact that I have uh, wonderfully grown children and grandchildren, and that is the biggest, biggest success I could have ever hoped for. I don't know Grandpa Casey really well. He passed away when I was young. What did he mean by you're going to be a world beater? Well, let me back up just, I mean, with, with my dad, my yeah. mother was my, my inspiration and my hero, um, for so many reasons. And I think the thing that I always noticed about mom is how she treated other people. Um, always so kind. And there was never a day when we didn't have somebody new at our house visiting or she was out visiting. And she's the one who really taught me to connect with people. Uh, my dad and I had a bit of a troubled relationship. He had an alcohol problem and I was the youngest and I didn't quite understand my older brother seemed to understand, but I think it affected everybody in the family. And I really um, didn't like my dad uh, because of that. And I, I, I was struggled with it. He, um, you know, he was drunk an awful lot of times, but he was a very good provider. My mother loved him and uh, we all, you know, kind of enabled the situation. But after his passing, um, I went to some therapy to figure out what was going on with me, and I found out that there are such a thing called adult children of alcoholics, and and they carry with them the legacy of some of that um, those issues, and and some of it comes with being enabling and um, and passive being a pacifist on some issues, and it you know there's just a lot to it, and I won't go all the way into it, but I learned an awful lot and tried to correct some things that had happened, and then one day. Um, through prayer and through a process, I forgave my dad completely and um, learned to love him and began to study a little bit more about him. And with that, I can tell you, he's very, very kind. He used to, uh, in the garage, make uh, little uh, uh, doll beds for kids at the hospital. And at Christmas time, he would go deliver 25 to 30 handmade with wood and, and cut all the things up himself and put a little doll in and take him down to the hospital. And he was just so kind that way. And he was actually very kind to my mom in retrospect. And after I got done with most basketball games, he would walk up to me. And while we weren't, you know, we didn't talk a lot, he'd always shake my hand and in the hand would be a $5 bill. And he'd say, go take the guys for a hamburger. And those were his signs of showing love and compassion and yeah. uh, kindness. And, um, and over time, I found out that uh, dad was a very kind man and also hardworking and in very difficult times when he was having some business issues, he made ends meet and made sure, uh, you know, we all got taken care of and fed. So, uh, you know, in retrospect and looking back, I love him dearly and um, can't wait to see him on the other side. I actually remember having one of those doll beds from grandpa with some pink bedding. Now, did grandma make that bedding? Did they work together on these beds? Yeah, absolutely. She, um, she saw what dad was doing and offered to do that. And dad and she became quite a little team and she'd make those in the kitchen and on our kitchen table. We didn't have a big house at all. And uh, we all got to see them working together. And in retrospect, it's probably what drove me to get involved in the nonprofit organizations that I'm involved in back in the day. Dad didn't have those kind of organizations um, like they do today. And so he did that all on his own with mom. So it was really a beautiful thing. That's really a cool memory to have. And I'm curious, you know, thinking about your relationship with grandpa, um, very different back then than it is now. Uh, how did your relationship with him back then as a teenager and as you were leaving to go to college, 
How did that affect your perspective moving forward? I mean, just as far as your own drive, how you wanted to be a dad when you got married. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think there's, yeah, I think there's a couple of things. One, it, you know, because back in the day we didn't have the support financially of dad, he wanted to and helped a little bit, but for the most part, we were on our own. We had to uh, earn the money to be able to pay for tuition in college, to pay for room and board. He would help, but he was going through a difficult time with his business. And um, so we were kind of um, had to do that. Uh, our freshman year was taken care of, but after that we were, you know, very much supporting ourselves. So I had to drive to earn money and, and make it. Um, and as time went on, I wanted to be a good dad. I wanted to be more involved. And I think it's funny from generation to generation, I see my kids much more involved in, with their kids, or at least it feels that way. But there are many nights that I took red eyes so I could be at a little league game where my dad may not have been. So I was trying to compensate uh, as much as I could, um, at the same time, work hard and, and build a career. So those are, you know, the juggling acts that I think every dad and mother in today's world do. Um, but I, I think I wanted to kind of surpass that kind of behavior in my life. Yeah. And you absolutely did. I, you know, I mentioned to mom last week that Denver felt like she really worked. And as I thought about our relationship and and you supporting us as kids, but also having a full-time job and traveling a lot, I remember you being at every basketball game. I remember you taking me on the court and, and practicing. So, I mean, just I'm silently clapping here because I now as a working mom and, you know, kind of juggling my work with Ryan's life and the kids, like it takes a lot of effort and you did a killer job. Um, so thank you for that, dad. Well, thank you. That's uh, nice to hear. You know, <laughs> someday, uh, you know, your teenage kids will not be the eight and nine and the, you know, the kids that love you so dearly. Yeah. There's a moment when you go, Oh boy. I remember Kinsey one time, you know, going through the teenage years. And then we, um, I met at college for lunch and with her and we were talking about, um, something and, and, um, one of the Malcolm Gladwell books came up and, uh, and I started talking to her about it and she goes, well, how do you know so much about that book? I said, well, I read it. She goes, you read a book? <laughs> <laughs> like she had no clue that I sort of was, uh, parents you know, don't do that. Yeah. Parents yeah, don't exactly. read. They don't have time so, for that. So how did you yeah. decide to get into television? You went off to college, you graduated from Brigham Young University. Um, where along the way did you make the decision to get into, uh, broadcasting and, and television? Everybody has a moment when they realize that they're either left brain or right brain, and they also realize strengths and weaknesses. And um, after I realized that I couldn't add, uh, counting was out. Um, <laughs> and when numbers, uh, funny that numbers are different in my head now, I've learned how to kind of uh, do, you know, kind of work with numbers differently than I did the way I was taught. Uh, but that's another story. But I then went and started looking for things, and I went to my first advertising class. And it just clicked. I said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to run an ad agency for a living. I'm going to own an ad agency. And that was really what I was headed to do. I love the creative thing. I think you've been around me enough to see the creative thought process that I have. And I think that was a, a gift. And so, um, and then one day a teacher came to me and said, hey, Steve, have you thought of media sales? I said, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> what what is that for time. our listeners? What I is know. that? <laughs> Well, it's selling airtime. And I go air. And um, but it's really the commercial time that you see, you know, all the spots that run for Toyota, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I said, I'm in. And I quickly switched over to that major and I got an internship. And then I got in the business selling airtime. And I had no idea that I'd become a general manager until 
the company I worked for only sold airtime for a multiple number of television stations. And then one day I got a job in Pittsburgh at a television station is when you fell in love with television as well. Yep. But I went to work at WTA in Pittsburgh and um, I couldn't believe the joy that I had going to work every day and getting to be a part of the sales team, but then getting to sneak into the newsroom and learn about the news business and then learn about promotion and marketing. And that's when it all clicked in for me is up until that point, I was just going to be a salesperson. But the day I walked into the newsroom, I said, one day I'll run one of these television stations. And fortunately through, you know, a lot of good fortune, it happened. It did happen. And that's really cool. I love um, hearing some of these stories because I this stuff I don't even know. I don't think I've ever heard you tell me that that was the turning point. Well, I'll tell you one of the funny stories, if you don't mind. So yeah. I used to sneak into the newsroom as a salesperson all the time and be at the early morning meetings and watch the assignment editors and see some editing. And it was almost like a little brother. What are you doing here? Get out of here. <laughs> and the head of news came to me and said, what are you doing in here? You're a sales guy. I said, I want to learn the news business. And then years later, um, that same man, Fred Young, um, who was the head of Hearst um, news for all of their television stations was sitting in front of me at an event called the Edward R. Murrow Awards. And I had just become a general manager in Salt Lake at the Fox station, Fox 13. And I was sitting behind him and I tapped him on the shoulder. And the award was for the best newscast in the country. And he goes, what are you doing here? I said, same thing I was doing when I was in your newsroom, learning the news business. He goes, well, why are you here? I said, KSTU in Salt Lake ran the best new, won the best newscast for a medium-sized market in the country, and his station had won the best for the large market. I said, so thank you. And he just <laughs> laughed, and he said, this guy learned everything he knows from me. Yeah, I bet. So, well, it's, it's yeah. cool in this industry, and, and I've been in media as well for over 13 years, how those relationships come full circle. I remember doing an internship at Paramount Studios when I was 18 years old. Later, and I was working with the executives of all the production, and uh, I worked with one in particular a lot. Well, a few years later, well, probably like, I don't know, six years later, uh, I ended up doing a consulting project for him when I was in media consulting. And he came to me and I put together his whole pitch deck for a new job that he wanted. Anyway, it's just, it's really cool how all those experiences kind of build on um, each other. And then you come full circle with a lot of these people that you work with. But how how did you make that jump from sales to running a station? Because there was, uh, we talked a little bit about this last week. We moved around a lot growing up as a family. So you started out in San Francisco and then jumped to Chicago and then P Pittsburgh. And then we went to Los Angeles, Salt Lake, back to Los Angeles. You had some other places after that. But how did you make that jump from um, media sales to becoming a GM of a television station? Well, um, it, good fortune, frankly. Um, but it also, there's a phrase in basketball, hanging around the rim. Mm -hmm. So if you want to get a rebound, you got to be by the rim and, so, um, and down by the basket. And I learned that early on in life. And one of the things by hanging around the rim, meaning the, the newsroom in Pittsburgh and, and marketing and whatnot, I uh, got a job at uh, Buena Vista Television, which is part of the Disney organization, for a couple of years, and uh, we were, I was in charge of kids marketing for their Disney afternoon programming. And um, I was working with all the television stations across the country for Disney, so I was on the road, and that was the part you talked about when I was gone an awful lot. 
Uh, but through that, I learned an awful lot about television. And then one day, a job opened in Salt Lake for a GM job, and I didn't even know about it. And my boss, a, more, a gentleman named Mort Marcus, who's one of my heroes in the business for a lot of reasons, one, because he's so smart, and second, because he took me under his wing, uh, said, there's a job I think you should take. And I said, what is it? And he told me that it was the job up in Salt Lake. So I really kind of made a leap over one of the jobs I hadn't had before, which was a general sales manager job. Mm. Uh, from I'd been a local sales manager and a national sales manager in Pittsburgh. And then I took this uh, uh, job at Disney. And the next thing I know, I'm being interviewed for this job in Salt Lake. And I still remember the day that I got it. Uh, uh, this gentleman named Mitch calls me and says, Steve, I've got good news and bad news. I go, what's the good news? He goes, I'm going to hire you as the general manager at the station in Salt Lake. I said, that's fantastic news. Are you kidding me? And I get paid for this? This is fantastic. And he goes, yeah. And I go, well, what could be the bad news? He goes, you got, you got to have Liz Murdoch, uh, Rupert's daughter, working for you. I said, what's the bad news about that? He goes, well... You know, and I thought it was great news and Liz was fantastic, but he yeah. thought that, you know, I might be intimidated. I couldn't have been intimidated because she was so nice. Yeah. Um, but um, it turned out great. And uh, Liz was wonderful to work with and she did great things. And because of that, I got to meet um, uh, Mr. Murdoch and uh, a couple of times in kind of more of an intimate setting than just our business meetings. And uh, it turned out to be a great uh, relationship, but that's how it happened. Wow. Wow. That's cool. I mean, there's definitely, I feel like, all success stories have an element of luck, but for sure, I mean, people need to know that you've got grit and you're one of the hardest working people I know. Like you said, going into the station early just to go to these meetings, um, it's nice when a little luck is passed our way, but it's what you do with that. And you went to that station, uh, had great success there. And um, we'll talk more about some of the other places you've been, but, you know, thinking about your 38-year career, and especially as a general manager of these stations, what do you love so much about what you do? Because like you said, you really do love what you do and you love going into work every day. Well, there's probably two elements to it that I love. Um, the first thing is that in the business part of it, there are never two days alike, ever. And so the only time I could actually say that there are two days alike or recently with the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. I come in at eight o'clock, I have a, a conference call and then I go to a nine o'clock, a 10 o'clock because we're dealing with crisis management at a level no one's ever known before. Right. So this is the first time ever that we've had sort of a routine like that, but every day changes. It goes from mm -hmm. 100 infected to 200 and what do we do in the newsroom? And so that changes and so that continues what I enjoy about news and about the television business never two days alike. Yeah. What I really love is building teams. And in building teams, I get to work with great people. And John Wooden once said, was asked the question, why are you the best coach? And his answer, which I remember because I was in the locker room when he said it, was because I have the best players. And the reason I was in the locker room was one of my friends was being recruited by them. And I went, you have the best players. Of course, you're the best coach. And so I remember that from day one. And I've actually recruit much like John Wooden, not so much for the best talent, but the best players. And that there's two different things. You can always have people with great, great talents, but if they don't fit the, the program that you're running, it will never work. You have to find people that fit your program. So we have a system here that uh, is a trust and respect program, which is I trust you to do your job. Please respect me and do it. Mm -hmm. And vice versa, you trust me to do my job as the GM, and I promise you I will respect you and do my job the best I can. And in building this trust and respect culture, 
um, it works really well. And well, why sometimes over the years, people said, you're too nice. I would like them to look back and say, hmm, too nice. It works really well because in those, those environments that are trust and respect environments that people work for the common good, and it's the we versus me. There's always a me. Mm-hmm. Trust me, everybody, including me, wants that. But if you look at the we first, then everything else kind of works. And people will say, why are you the best GM? Or, you know, not that I'm the best, but I'm a good one. Yeah, you are. And the reason being is I have the best players. You are. And you and you recruit, just like you said Wooden does. Now, I think, I mean, I'm just thinking back to my own experience in media and working with heads of um, media companies and television networks. Uh, People are not always nice. And I mean, you can find that anywhere. Uh, I feel like the media industry, especially, can be known for being pretty cutthroat. I think we both have had some experiences where you just wonder if there are really nice people in the world at all because you are surrounded by people that aren't great. And so in an industry that can be kind of cutthroat at times, um, how, how did you develop this leadership? How do you, why do you think it succeeded the way that it did time and time again, when you, you're surrounded by many people, not all of them, but many people who are a little bit more like dog eat dog style, you know? Well, you know, it's interesting. I found a long time ago, if you compliment people and magnify their strengths and not their weaknesses, they perform much better. And I think if you're helping people to focus in on the greater good, they perform better. Now, there were times as I developed my leadership style that people took advantage of me. And uh, and I always tell people, don't consider my kindness for stupidity or for a lack of desire. Mm-hmm. My kindness is to give you the chance to be an adult. But if you're not an adult, you don't get to work here anymore. Yeah, And so the Carlton train is a happy train, a productive train. <laughs> it definitely is. And a train, and, it, and it, it is, and I make sure they understand that. But when you go back and look at two things, the coaching tree, they call it, how many people that have worked for me that have gone on to greater things, there is a huge list, okay? And I'm proud of that list, not for me, but really excited for the people that have gone on and created great things for their life. But there's also a tree that is the people that have not made, not been able to stay on the train. And so I always tell them there is a train that says you're going in a different direction. You can get on that one. And that is just a nice way of saying you're fired. <laughs> and that happens. And look, you're still nice when you you have to, to let someone go. That's hard to do. Well, I will <laughs> tell you this, and it all comes down to this. I do believe from the core of my soul, and I think you know this about me, that I'm fortunate Whenever I get to meet somebody, Mm -hmm. there's almost 8 billion people on the planet. So the chance of me running into them and having an intersection is a miracle. And I give talks about this all the time about being connected to people. Mm -hmm. So if someone gets in my pathway, I make sure I meet them. And I treat my employees that way. They have the same right to the same space that I do. They're an employee. I'm an employee. I have a different responsibility and they have a responsibility different than mine. But we all punch a clock, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and we all have a responsibility for one another. And so I take that very, very seriously. And I believe that, you know, in life, when I meet somebody out there, it might be uh, a teller at a bank. It might be a cashier. It might be an attorney at some big firm. To me, they're all just on my path, and they all deserve the same respect, not because the attorney's great, but because he's just one of those people in the pathway. 
Uh, and that segues us to something that uh, I definitely wanted to cover because you do, you make a point of being everyone's friend. And I always joke around that that you are friends with everyone. I feel like there is no exaggeration there. I, there every, we've been together in New York for work, in Los Angeles, Utah, all over the place. And I swear every time that we are together, we always run into someone that you know somehow or that you've met somewhere. Uh, it, it's been a gift that I've watched you develop, but one that you definitely... I would say came to earth with, um, but a gift of being able to connect with people. Um, how have you seen that, uh, you know, kind of play out in your life? Where did you really start to develop that gift and notice it and kind of spread your wings with it? Well, it's a great, and it's a great question because I had, I have to think about that a little bit. And I will tell you that it started with grandma Margaret, you know, cause she was a great connector and she was one that was always kind to people. But I was uh, in a sales job and um, way back, I believe it was Chicago, and um, somebody was talking to me about somebody else, and they were kind of downplaying the person. And I said, well, and I sort of probably joined in the fun, okay? We might have been, you know, saying something negative. And then all of a sudden, I realized, what am I doing? This is somebody that has something that probably, you know, I need to know about. So I made a point to go to get to know that person. And... um, it was amazing that while that person was an engineer and I was a salesperson and personalities are very different in those two categories, I made a big connection with that person. And it was at that moment that I said, everybody I meet has a story mm-hmm. and I want to know their story. And those stories have made me stronger. And it goes back to, you know, kind of deeper roots and understanding and, um, you know, kind of the concept of life connected that I talk about a lot. Yeah. Tell us about that concept because you, you go around and you do public speaking uh, all over the Los Angeles area and out of state as well. And you have a, a theme, living a life connected. Did I say it right? Or do you say it a different way, but basically living life connected, right? Well, yeah, uh, to live your life connected. So here's the concept of the importance of being connected. First, Buddha talked about the whole world being connected. He said, everything is connected. And if you just look at a genealogy chart and start to work all the way back to the beginning of time, it's an absolute true statement. All starts with Adam and Eve, and you can trace your roots all the way back if you're fortunate enough, that every single person is on that family tree. And so with that as kind of a, a landscape for what it looks like, what roots look like, there are two trees on the planet. One is an ornamental pear, and it is a gorgeous tree. It's got flowering uh, uh, leaves on it, and in the spring, it is just gorgeous. The problem with that particular tree, it has a very shallow root system and stands alone. It, it never connects mm-hmm. with any other tree. It's just by itself, and it tips over easily in a storm, and it is one of the um, trees that dies the earliest on the planet. It lives mm-hmm. about 25 years. Make that comparison to a sequoia redwood, which is 400 feet tall, and it has a shallow root system relatively of about 10 feet deep for a 400-foot tree. So why doesn't it tip over? It's because all the roots in the redwood forest connect with one another, and they support each other. And so all of those roots, sometimes you can't even tell which which tree it belongs to. And when you have deep roots or connected roots, there's no reason to fear the wind. And so those trees live 400, 500 years long 
because they have this deep, not deep, but a wide root system. And that's kind of what I try to live my life is by knowing more people, I have more sense of humanity. I have more understanding, more compassion. I have more friends, which during <laughs> difficult times can help me. Yeah. And then my children have that example. And they, and I can tell you and your listeners that Courtney is my mini me when it comes to this, <laughs> as are a lot of my other kids. And so now I have their friends yeah. and my root system is pretty strong. Oh yeah, your root <laughs> your root system might be the best one, the strongest one that I know, um, because you have. I mean, with all that traveling, and I used to do it too when I traveled and I did focus groups. Is I just would take note of people's stories, and it, it made an impact on me. And then watching you do that, and finding those stories, and watching your mom um, just meet people and talk to them, and you realize everyone has a story, but not just that they have something to share and something that we can learn from one another. I, I know that you've had a huge impact on many, many, many people that you have connected with. I'd love to know who has had a big impact on you out of those stories that we've talked about in the past um, as you've lived your life connected. You know, I, I, there's lots of friends that I could mention. Jerry Johnson uh, was a guy that I worked for that taught me more about life than I'll ever know. John Weiser, who's a current friend, who um, is just one of the most inspirational people I know. Uh, my best friend, David Tolliver, um, in the business uh, world, he and I speak probably every morning at 530, and he has had such an impact on me understanding um race relations. And we talk every morning about business as well as issues like the race issues in America, economy, sports, and those are just individuals. But if you don't mind, I'm going to tell you a story that I don't think you know about. Oh, I love that. Um, that, that has impacted me recently more than anything. And it may take a minute, yeah, please. but I'll try to make it quickly. Um, I work out every morning. You and I have that habit in us and so do all the other kids in the family, it seems. But I do it because it's a mental release as mm -hmm. much as, you know, at, at 100 years old, I'm not going to get stronger, <laughs> but I will be able to stay sane. Yeah. And I work out with a lot of young people and they keep me uh, very connected and um, very in touch with what's going on, quite frankly. And so it helps me mentally as well as physically. And one morning I went into the sauna just to kind of finish my workout and stretch. And there was a gentleman in there that... Um, you know, who was struggling, had some difficulties and a handicap that was cerebral palsy. And, um, but he had walked in on a cane and I'd seen him walk in, but uh, by the time I got there, he was already seated down. And as he went to get out of his seat in the, in the sauna off the bench, uh, one of the other young men uh, there uh, helped this man and got him outside of the sauna. And I'm like, what a nice thing that that guy did. And I was really taken back. And when he came in, I said, you know, I don't know you, but I got to tell you, that was really nice. He goes, oh, man, I was just doing what I could do. And so now it's time for me to leave. And I hadn't really noticed that the gentleman um, that was outside hadn't left yet. And I was going out right when he was standing up and he was walking in front of me a little bit and struggling and using his cane and the wall to stand up. And something moved me. And this is by this way, this story is not about me. Uh, you know, I'm going to do something nice in this story, but it's not about me. And I said, um, hey, can I help you? And he looked at me with eyes that, you know, I truly felt like I saw God in this moment. And I said, he said, yes, I that it would be so wonderful. 
and I was so shy about it. It was like, oh, do I interrupt? You know, is it embarrassed? You know, does he, is he going to be embarrassed because I asked him if he needed help? He readily took my help and he took my arm and we walked out the door. And as we were walking out the door to get to the main locker room, I said, what's your name? And he said, it's Jose. And so how old are you, Jose? And he said, I'm 54. And we started to have a conversation. And then he said, thank you so much for helping me. This is just marvelous. And so I'm like taken back by this and, and I'm helping him out the door and I go, you know, do you like basketball? What are you? And he goes, I love every sport. And then he said, and thank you again for helping me. And so we walked him out to his car. I walked him out to his car and I said, Jose, is this okay? And do you need more help getting in the car? And he said, no, but I want you to know that this was most wonderful of you to help me to the car. And then he grabbed my arm and pulled me closer to him and he kissed my forehead. And he said, I can't thank you enough. And then he got in his car and drove away. And what I learned from that moment was something that I've taught all my life is that everybody's God's kid. And this particular kid, my brother, needed help. And it wasn't because of me, but because the spirit kicked me in the butt and said, help him. And it reminded me of a couple of things. We're all crossing our paths our own way. And when they intersect, you need to say, can I help you? And um, it moved me to a, a place that I haven't been moved in a long time. And it, it's hard to explain the feeling I had and the, the spirit that touched my soul. But it really was a moment of living connected and going back to Buddha that everything and everyone is connected. Wow, Dad, that's an incredible story. And you and I have talked before. I know you feel like you meet people for a reason, that we cross paths for a reason. Why do you feel that way? Well, well, listen, we, we never meet them by accident, okay? It may seem like that, but there's always a reason that our paths are crossed. And it might be that we're going to meet someone that will test us or test our attitude or our temper. There might be a reason that someone's going to use us and, and we have to learn to deal with that. There might be something that we cross somebody's path in our lives that we learn about love in a different way. Like in this particular case with Jose, I learned about love in a very different perspective. I also learned that I could be taught by somebody that I'd never met before. There's people that bring out the best in us. There's people that bring out the worst in us. And more than anything, there are people that will remind us of our great self-worth. And so the more people you meet, the greater opportunity. The, the great philosopher, Dr. Seuss, this is a quote that I remember, sometimes you will never know the value of the moment until it becomes a memory. Yeah. So the great Dr. Seuss taught us, you know, that every moment counts mm -hmm. and honor that moment and honor the people you meet along the pathway. Oh, Absolutely. I feel like you just have such a positive outlook on life. You have a love for life like you do for your family and for your job and the hobbies that you do, but you have a great love for other people and you're always so positive about it. How, and, and we'll close, but I, I want to hit this one question. How do you stay positive just with your outlook on life? I mean, you run a business that you're reporting hard news, things that are sad, things that are scary, that are disappointing. Um, you've had your own disappointments in life, um, a hard relationship with your dad growing up, seeing him pass away um, later on and, and just curveballs, you know, and trials and challenges. How have you worked through those and maintained a positive, loving uh, excitement for life? Well, you know, your life is only as good as your mindset. 
And that starts when you wake up in the morning. It starts when you go to bed at night. And it all becomes a gratitude game. Because if you have gratitude in your heart, it can't coexist with anger, anxiety, frustration, and all of the other negatives that are out there. So if you put gratitude to start the day, it's very difficult um, for you to have anything other than a great day ahead of you. And I'm grateful for many, many things. And you, you know, I always talk to people about writing a gratitude list when they're having difficult times because you can't have gratitude and have that exist with anxiety or anger or the other things. And I've always thought you can never be a prisoner of the past. It's a lesson, not a life sentence. Mm -hmm. And so you have to let go of the things that happened the day before. You can't hold on to that. And that life sentence is something that holds people back. I did something wrong. I made a mistake. Uh, this messed up. And if you hold on to that forever, and we all have at some point, I have uh, for a long time held on to things, and you try to let go of them and finally realize I've given myself a life sentence. That lesson's already been learned. And so C.S. Lewis once read this. He said, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. So I look at every day as a new chapter to begin my ending as opposed to my past because I can't change that chapter. And so every day I have a routine. I wake up, there's prayer, there's contemplation or what is now the modern the vernacular of uh, meditation. Mm -hmm. There's my workout. There's the kiss goodbye in the morning. There's um, happy greetings throughout the day. I've often lived to be the first one to say hello and the first one to say I'm sorry. And I find that those let those yesterdays go pretty quickly and allow me to have that joy in my heart. And, you know, kindness and joy begins with us. You know, it's, there are, we're not born winners or losers. We have some more winning situations we're born into and some more or less fortunate, but we're not born losers. We're born choosers. And so, you know, every morning you wake up and you say, I'm choosing joy. Yeah. I'm choosing gratitude. I'm choosing kindness. And when that happens and you can get over that hurdle of poor me and just say, listen, it's not poor me. It's happy me. It's mm -hmm. a joyous me. It is a wonderful life. Um, because it's, you know, my, grandma Marty used to say this life is short. Smile while you still have teeth, Steve. <laughs> and and so I've tried to live that. Well, you've done it incredibly. I mean, I, I think people listening now understand why I look up to you so much and why I consider you one of my heroes, one of my best friends, my mentor. Um, and, you know, you guys, I'm going to say it, the best dad in the world. I just said it. Okay, there it is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the best dad and the best mom. So there you go. I do. I do. There you go. Uh, dad, thank you so much for all these just incredible insights into just living a life of positivity, one that is connected, being able to kind of go outside of ourselves and uh, look at other people as God would look at them um, with humility and compassion and just the pure love of Christ. It's a great example. And I'm so thankful uh, that you could share this with us today. Thanks, sweetie. I love you. Love you, dad. All right, you guys, I will see you next week for another episode of Courtney Beyond the Cake. Thanks, friends, for tuning in today. For show notes and other episodes of Courtney Beyond the Cake, head to cakebycourtney.com forward slash podcast. And for all things cake, remember, you can find me over on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Cake by Courtney. And for all my recipes, products, information about my online classes, just head to cakebycourtney.com. <laughs>